You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Bapu Jenna, who is a professor of healthcare policy and medicine at Harvard Medical School, and also the host of the Freakonomics MD podcast, and the author of this book, co-author of this book, called uh, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. Welcome, Bapu. Thank you for having me. Well, look, I, I love this book. It's right up my alley, right? It's all about behavioral economics, right? It's experimental economics of a sort, right? Because you're using natural experiments. And you are, I think, one of the few MD economics PhDs out there. I think there's a lot of MD PhDs in things like biology, <laughs> biochemistry, and neuroscience even. But there don't seem to be a whole bunch of PhDs in economics that are also in the practice of medicine. And I want to know that backstory because I'm not sure I, I've heard it. How on earth did you, I mean, you know, getting a PhD requires a lot of schooling. Getting an MD requires a lot of schooling. Why on earth would you sign up for that much schooling? <laughs> First of all, I'm not sure it's a good thing. I don't know if it's a market distinction. It may be a, a series of bad decisions that only a few people were foolish enough to make, but my story is a little bit by chance because, as you alluded to, most MD PhDs out there do something in the life sciences in some capacity. And that was my plan. When I was in college, I, I worked in a lab, a basic science lab, and I, I knew I wanted to go to medical school, but I, I also thought I might want to do research. And I was doing research in the basic sciences and applying to MD PhD programs around the country. This would have been about around 1999, actually. And when I went to the University of Chicago for my interview, the director of the MD-PhD program, who himself was a, a physician scientist, but a basic scientist, noticed I had also studied economics in college. And uh, I studied biology and economics, and I had only studied economics in college because I thought it might help round me out a little bit more. I didn't have any particular affinity for economics, but I did it. And so I'm at the University of Chicago, this is December of 1999, it's a rainy day, I remember. And he says to me, well, would you want to do your PhD in economics instead? Because we just had a new professor start here who himself had done his MD and his PhD in economics at the University of Chicago, had gone to Harvard to train in internal medicine and had just come back. And his name was David Meltzer. So the director of the program said, do you want to meet with him this afternoon and maybe we can get you some meetings in the economics department. And so literally that afternoon, I went to meet with some economists. I went to meet with David Meltzer and I decided to apply to the econ program in that one place. And, and I got in and June of that year, I came to Chicago. I was in Boston at that time for college and drove up there with my dad and started taking anatomy in the summer and then started taking microeconomics and macro and econometrics just a couple months later, starting in September. And so that's how it happened for me. It was total chance. Well, I mean, look, the methodologies of economics are very powerful, right? And they help us to understand things like causation. And it's kind of a wonder that the tools of economics have not really been applied to the medical profession in the same way that they've been applied to sort of other industrial processes, if we can call it that, right? So like if you're trying to understand the production of steel or of railroads and so forth, I mean, there's a lot of economic research that goes into that. Why do you suppose there hasn't been so much? This is, look, healthcare is 20% of the economy, right? 20% of GDP. I mean, it's probably our biggest industry, maybe after finance. And gosh, there's tons of economists that are doing research in, in finance. What's the issue here? Is it primarily data access or is it seen as like this art, right? And therefore not susceptible to the kinds of analytics that we would apply to other occupations and other parts of industry. Yeah. I mean, Greg, I think the short answer is not enough people have read my book. That's the short answer. Um, the, <laughs> the, the longer answer is, I don't know, but let me take a stab at it. So one is that in medicine, we have been really fortunate to be able to do randomized controlled trials for a long time, situations where we take a lot of patients who have a medical condition and we randomize them to one drug versus another or one treatment versus another. 
and that allows us to establish causation. It tells us what is the effect of this treatment for this condition, for these types of patients. And it's interesting because in economics, there's been, I'll call it a revolution of randomized trials. It's relatively recent that in economics, we are using randomized trials. And in part, it's because I think for a long time, it was they were perceived to be as difficult to do, which they are. The funding was often not there, whereas in medical circumstances, we have large companies who have a lot of interest in seeing whether or not their technology, a drug, for example, works or not. So there is a financial case to get that information, whereas in economics, there might not be much of one. And as a result, I think economists have had to become very clever at coming up with these natural experiments where you can say something about causation without having it be administered by the hands of an investigator who himself or herself is randomizing patients or people to one treatment versus another. In medicine, outside of randomized trials, though, we do a lot of these so-called observational studies. And generally, and I think they're pretty poor, and they're poor is because the, the researchers don't seem to either understand or don't seem to take it seriously that causation is the question that they're trying to understand here, but they're okay with sort of correlations between one treatment and one outcome, which may not be causal at all. And I think it does require some ingenuity. Uh, it's harder to do a, a study where you have a well-identified natural experiment that allows you to establish causation. Much harder to do that than to just get some data and start running regressions and finding correlations between treatments and outcomes. It's much easier to do. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm always in awe of the preponderance of RCTs in medicine, but it seems like they're not applied universally across all forms of protocols and interventions, right? It's usually the pharmaceutical ones, right? Because you have to get through the FDA. But for non-pharmaceutical interventions and protocols, it doesn't seem like they get enough mm, clinical trials, right? And furthermore, I think in economics, we talk about field experiments, which in economics, we, when we do field experiments, like we're okay with all of the sloppiness and we're okay with all of the spillovers, right? So it seems like in medicine, you don't do as many field experiments. So for instance, there was this whole experiment about this whole discussion about say masking. Well, if you do a trial where, you know, everything is controlled, you're going to get one result. But if you just throw it out there and you're not testing the mask, but you're testing the mask recommendation, then, you know, you get very, very different outcomes. So is there any obstacle to doing more both field experiments and maybe RCTs on things that are non-pharmaceutical? Yeah, I think this is a fundamental point. It's probably, it's more important than I think most people would imagine what you're saying. A couple of thoughts. One is that if I think in economics, where do we see these sorts of experiments occurring? They're typically occurring in the field of development economics, and, and they're happening in relatively resource-poor settings where you can do these large randomized trials at not a, not a lot of cost. We don't see many RCTs happening in economics in the U.S. We do see some, but some, some of the most famous ones in recent years in economics were sort of piggybacked on RCTs that someone was doing already. So for example, the Oregon health insurance experiment where people were randomized to Medicaid versus not, the state of Oregon was already going to do that. So it wasn't like this was a, an RCT that needed to be conducted and implemented in the same way as you might do so if you're trying to test whether one drug works versus another. So the costs are different, I think, to do things here versus in other places. And secondly, I think the incentives matter a lot. So why is it that we see randomized trials for even the smallest of drugs that have incremental likely improvements. Well, the reason why is because there's a company that invested a lot of money to develop that drug. They want to figure out whether or not the drug works. And in fact, they would love to see the drug work. They have to do that. And they will do that because it's required by the FDA for approval or for new indications. That is not true for 80% of what we do in healthcare. Drugs are about 20% of healthcare spending, but everything else is Dr. A versus Dr. B, hospital A versus hospital B. It's really important to get causal evidence on whether or not going to a higher spending hospital is better than going to a lower spending hospital or going to a more experienced doctor is better than going to a less experienced doctor. Or in your case, Greg, wearing a mask versus not. Those are things where there's no private incentive 
to invest in that knowledge. And I think that's why we get so little of it. And if we were to think about why it took years, and we still don't have great data on masking, but we have tremendous data on all sorts of pharmaceuticals, biopharmaceuticals in COVID-19, lots of information. But we have like hardly any high-quality randomized trials of things like masking, ventilation systems, all these things that matter to us, no RCT data or very limited RCT data. And I think it's because the incentive privately wasn't there. And if I were to go a step further, I'd say, well, why didn't the government step in? This is absolutely the role of the government is to correct these failures of the market to generate information that would be valuable to lots of people. So that's sort of, I think, a breakdown there. Yeah. Well, you'd also think that at least within medical schools, they would be supporting this kind of research for their research academics. But you have leveraged natural experiments. So I want to talk about why natural experiments are so powerful and and so valuable. And I think part of it has to do with the availability of data, right? Is the availability of data better now? Are you able to run, are you able to do natural experiments in a way that wasn't possible maybe a decade ago because of data availability? I mean, is data availability still a problem? My impression is that the data exists in all sorts of closed IT systems and silos, and it's kind of hard to get it all together to answer the kind of questions that that you've been asking. So you're saying we need to get it unsiloed? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, I mean, I read stories about how the British medical system, they have all the data from all of the patients in the NHS. And so they can sort of ask questions that are more difficult to ask in the US. But some of the studies that you did, I mean, there were tens of thousands of data points. Has this data always been as available as it is now? Is it getting easier to do the kinds of research that you're doing? Yeah. So I think that the the answer is yes and no. So data are there. I don't think in medicine, the big issue with using or, you know, leveraging natural experiments to answer questions that we care about in medicine, I don't think that the limitation is the availability of data. We have plenty of data. It's just that that way of thinking of causation and what's required to establish it it does take more analytic work. You have to sort of have more clever ideas about what would be a natural experiment that exposes some people by chance to one treatment versus another. It's harder to do that kind of work. And I think people are less familiar with it. So I think the data is not the roadblock in the field of medicine now. But two things are true. One is it still is difficult to get some data. It costs money. It's available. Uh, I'm fortunate to, to be in a place where we have access to lots of data. Other people at other institutions may not have that access. So there is still, I think, a component of cost and barriers to acquiring data, but it does literally exist. I think that, though, if we were to take a a slightly longer arc, not in the last 10 years, but if we think about the last 20 years or 30 years, data in medicine has had a huge impact in ways that I think people don't quite realize. So, for example, In the early 2000s, late 1990s, the Institute of Medicine, it's called a different name now, but it highlighted this problem with quality of care in America. And it basically said, the IOM said that we have a a huge quality problem. There's diagnostic errors that occur, mistakes occur, those sorts of things. But the ability of people to understand the scope of the problem was made possible only because we now had data this administrative data, insurance billing data, it gave us a window into how large scale a problem this was. Before that, we couldn't do quality measurement because there was no no, no measurement possible. What data were we going to use? So I think the field of quality improvement has dramatically changed because of the innovation in data. Observational studies and the quality of observational studies, the volume of them has gone up. I don't think the quality has gone up so much. Now, look, I think probably the most well-publicized study in the book is the one about the cardiologists, right? I remember when this came out, I was telling everybody I knew, not because I have any anything against cardiologists, but it is a, a wonderful example of, of a natural experiment, and it raises so many questions, and you mentioned that it was highly controversial. Has there been any response to that study? Because, I mean, if there are no responses, if we don't learn anything from these insights and then go back and rethink how we say do diagnostics or whatever, then, you know, it's kind of pointless to do this other than just to satisfy our curiosity. So I was wondering if you could walk through, first of all, the origins of that study and how, you know, the idea came about. And then 
what's come to pass since? What have we learned from that? Yeah. So the origin of the study was, I was, I remember I was in residency at Match General Hospital. I happened to be working in the critical care unit for cardiology patients, the cardiac ICU. And it happened to be around the time that one of the big cardiology meetings was being held, if I remember correctly, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology. And I just had this feeling, I was like, it feels like it's less well-staffed in the unit right now. And I don't know if it actually was. In fact, it probably was not. But I just had that feeling pop into my mind. And then I thought, well, you know, in a hospital like Mass General, there's a lot of cardiologists. We might not be understaffed during the dates of these meetings. But in another place where cardiologists would leave town to attend these large medical conferences that are important for their careers, for them to learn, for them to present information, it might be the case that the staffing might fall, either the, the literal number or amount of staffing, but also the types of doctors. So the staffing itself, the number might remain the same, but the types of doctors who stay behind and the types of doctors who leave the hospital to go to the meetings might be different, and that might affect care. And what we found was paradoxical. It's not what I expected to find. We actually found that outcomes improve for patients who, by chance, are hospitalized during the dates of these meetings. And that was a controversial aspect of it. It's like, how could it be possible that when cardiologists are away or some cardiologists are away, that people did better? And so we, one thing that we showed was that rates of certain procedures fall during the dates of those meetings. And the take home for us is, well, you know what, even though a procedure might on average be beneficial to people, during the dates of these meetings, what happens? Well, the doctors figure out, oh, maybe this person here doesn't need this procedure, or I'm not sure that they need this procedure. And so what? They don't get the procedure because they're a little bit less staffed. And if the procedure was helpful for those kinds of patients who are at the margin, then we would think that outcomes would get worse. But in fact, if outcomes get better, it means that we were pulling back the procedure on people whose benefit was now in reality, as we demonstrate, outweighed by the clinical risks associated with the procedure. So it spoke to this idea that less could be more. And it's an idea that others have talked about, but we were able to show it, I think, in, a, in an elegant way. Now, there was a lot of controversy. Cardiologists or some cardiologists at, at first were sort of thought the results weren't possible. And I, I can certainly understand why. And we did a lot to try to convince people that they were real. We even did another study with a different set of cardiology meetings focused on interventional cardiologists. These are the ones who only do procedures. And we found very similar results in a different context. And we could go a bit further to try to understand why this might be happening. You asked about what do you do about the study or what was the impact of the study? Well, I did the study because I was curious. I, I didn't do the study because I wanted to change the face of medicine or change how cardiology was practiced. I've always been driven, and the book is filled with these kinds of examples. I've always honestly myself been driven by the curiosity of it. You know, I certainly do think about what are the extensions of the research? How can it change practice? In this case here, and I think it was another data point to tell people that sometimes less is more, but what I think it did more of, and probably what most of my studies do more of, instead of move the needle in terms of one specific clinical practice, it is just getting the medical world more in tune with these ideas of natural experiments and be trying to just be a little bit more curious and innovative when we come up with approaches to studying questions. Because a lot of what we study in medicine is like, it's critically important. I mean, it matters for our health. Sometimes it matters for life and death. We have the ability to do randomized trials and those are great, but sometimes we can't do them or we don't do them. And I think we can't phone it in for those other types of analysis. We got to be as curious, as intellectual, and as creative as we can be to try to figure out the right answer. The randomized trials help us get us there, but they're so expensive and hard to do. So we need something that's commensurate in terms of credibility. Yeah. So of course, one would hope that after an experiment like that, that the cardiology profession would rethink their protocols somewhat, right? And maybe increase the burden of proof, right, on these interventions. Is there any evidence that that's happened? No, not from my study, but I'll give you an example. There was a study, a famous study in cardiology called the COURAGE trial. And the COURAGE trial took patients with a certain type of chest pain, and it randomized them to receive stenting of the heart, which is an invasive procedure, versus medical management, meaning treating the conditions, the symptoms of the chest pain just medically. 
And I think what people expected to see was that the interventional arm, the procedural arm, would do better. But what the study found was that really medical management was just as good. And so that was an example of a randomized trial where it showed that less might be more, and that did have a huge impact on practice. And I think in medicine, what we see is that for something to change practice, it's unlikely to get there by an observational study. It usually is a randomized controlled trial that is required. And I think the problem is because in medicine, we sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We publish all of these observational studies, and yet at the same time, people don't really believe them and feel like they can act on them, and appreciably so, because they shouldn't act on the observational studies that are done for the most part, because they're not causal. But when there are studies that come out that have better study designs, and I can give you some examples of what that looks like in clinical medicine, they should change practice. But I think they don't because doctors still say, well, look, what's the randomized trial? And they don't really fully understand that what we're showing here is essentially trying to mimic a randomized trial. Now, look, in a lot of the judgment and decision-making literature, when we look at what we might think of as biases in in decision-making, the consequences are usually pretty minimal, right? It's like, okay, maybe I put too much equity in my 401k or something like that, right? But these are oftentimes life or death decisions that are being made by physicians. And so, you know, I, I use some of the examples from Kahneman, and Fersky in my class, and they, of course, did a couple experiments with doctors. A lot of your research really is on diagnostics. And it seems like I'm I'm always amazed at how much discretion individual doctors are given when it comes to diagnostics, right? We don't let pilots decide, you know, all that much about the maintenance of the planes and so forth and, you know, how much fuel they have. But we give a lot of discretion to doctors, Should we be thinking about maybe restricting their discretion to some degree? I mean, you know, usually discretion is given when the decision maker has a lot of local knowledge and that local knowledge is very difficult to aggregate. You know, we're in a world where we have the capacity to aggregate a lot of this. Should we be thinking about maybe moving more towards an algorithm that would the doctors would just follow the algorithm, answer the questions, go through the decision tree, and then have discretion that's limited to any kind of unique aspects of the case? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think the short answer is, it depends on how good the algorithm is, right? I mean, you're asking a question about what we can, in economics, we sometimes think about, and it comes up in lots of different contexts. I think about it in monetary economics, rules versus discretion. And here, The question is whether doctors should follow rules, so a guideline tells them they should do X, Y, and Z when they see a person with a condition, or have discretion. And I think if I were to give us the following thought experiment, imagine that there's three types of doctors. The first doctor always follows the guidelines, no matter what. The second doctor never follows the guidelines, no matter what. And then the third doctor follows the guidelines, follows the rules, 80% of the time, which doctor do we think will have the best outcomes for their patients? And I don't know the answer to that question. Nobody's ever looked at it. We've thought about ways to try to to get at this question because I think it's important. But my intuition would be that the third doctor might have the best outcomes, even though he or she doesn't follow the quote unquote rules all the time. And the reason why is because 80% of the time they're following the rules, which means they're aware of the rules. It's not like they don't know them. Doctor two doesn't know the rules. That's why they can't follow them. Doctor three knows the rules, but with intention sometimes decides to not follow them. And that's where the judgment comes in. The art of medicine comes in. Now, as we get better and better at being able to to make those rules more precise for individual patients, which I think that day is coming at some point, then I would worry about doctors exercising a lot of discretion. So it really depends on how precise we can be with an algorithm or a set of rules to guide doctor decision-making. And there's some doctors who would better would benefit from algorithmic care, and there's some who would probably would be harmed if they were forced to use rules that weren't necessarily perfect, but pretty good, but not perfect, because they might be able to do better than that. So one of the examples that you use in the book is if somebody is 39.999 years old, right, they're going to get different treatment than somebody who's 40.001 years. Now, 
look, the human brain can only handle so much. So, you know, a fairly simple rule like, okay, over 40, under 40, that kind of makes sense when there's only so much you can carry around. But if you have a computer there <laughs> that knows the age, then they could presumably, you know, take into consideration the, the fact that age is a continuum and it's not divided into these discrete buckets. Are those kinds of rules of thumb just a product of our lack of extended brain from previous decades? I think that's right. It, it, that finding, we call it left-digit bias. And it's actually one thing, when you started off the conversation, we were talking about behavioral economics. One of the things that I've thought about the intersection of behavioral economics and medicine is that it may not be surprising that the types of things that behavioral economists will often study show what they do, right? Because when the stakes are not high, it's not hard to sort of rely on that autonomous part of your brain that tells you that someone who's 40 is different than someone who's 39, right? What does it matter? You go to the grocery store, something $7.99 versus $8. And yes, you're more likely to buy it when it's $7.99 versus $8. But you wouldn't think that if that applied to life-saving chemotherapy, that you'd be more likely to buy the, the chemotherapy that's $7,999 versus $8,000. You would think, well, life-saving chemotherapy, I'm going to figure out which therapy I need. I'm not just going to let a, a mind trick or heuristic move me in one way or the other. That was my thought. Now, fast forward to some of the studies that we've done and others have done. We do find that some of the behavioral economic issues that economists, psychologists have raised, they still manifest themselves even in high stakes decisions. And to me, that was sort of the most interesting thing. Not to say that left digit bias occurs when uh, cardiac surgeons are deciding whether or not to take a person to cardiac surgery, and they're less likely to do it if the person's 80 and more likely to do it if the person's 79 years old in 50 weeks because 70s versus 80s, they, doctors think of these patients as being different. They categorize them as different. But what was surprising to me is that, oh, wow, this is a cardiac surgeon. They're thinking very seriously about whether or not to take this person to the OR. How could it be the case that something as simple as the week in which that person is born, whether they just turned 80, or they're about to turn 80, could make a difference. And nonetheless, it does. And so I think that is certainly an example for where some sort of algorithm coming in and correcting the doctor could be very useful and have an impact. Yeah. I mean, do you think that we require too much cognitive load for our physicians? They have to do a lot with the, their brains. You talk about distraction. When I talk about uses of machine learning in, in my classes, I say, hey, look, robots don't get tired. They don't have marital troubles. They don't get hungry. They're not plagued with all the stuff that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis that will impair our cognition. Do we demand too much from our doctors? And why do the doctors put up with it? Is it like a some kind of heroism? Or is it because they kind of enjoy the flow state of rapid decision-making? Would they have any problem with offloading some of this? You mentioned sort of like the idea of like lane correction. You know, you, you still get to drive the car, but when you veer into the lane, it's like, yeah, maybe you might not want to like go into the ditch. Yeah. Uh, I, so I was just on service at, at MGH and what you were describing as robots. I was like, wow, this MGH residents, they don't get tired. They don't get hungry. They just do it. No, it's really interesting. When I was on service, I could appreciate the complexity of patients. And when we make decisions in the day, I just think about it. You walk into the room and you've got, let's say, 10 people or 15 people that you're caring for with a team that day. There's large amounts of data to review for each person. And it's difficult for the human mind sometimes to sort through all that. It's easy to miss things, right? And it's easy to not realize what's the big thing that you need to be looking for versus the small thing. And you get that with experience. I think with experience, you do better there. But it's certainly the case that even with experienced doctors, they still miss things. And I think that's where computers can be really helpful. They can sort of in the background, as they see the data that is generated on a daily basis for a person, seeing what the past medical history of that person is, seeing the trajectory of all of those things, like how are the labs looking over time? What is the imaging looking like over time? What are the nurses notes saying about delirium or agitation? Are there more mentions of that as we're going on? You know, a computer could see all that information and put it together in a way that a human being might not be able to. And at a very minimum, I think it could offer us some good insights can help us consider things that we weren't considering. So I think there's a lot of promise for that sort of thing. 
But you're right. The decision-making is often complex, especially around the diagnosis. It's hard to sometimes make certain diagnoses. And that's where I think we can really, really improve is, is this area of getting the right diagnosis. You also talk about alarm fatigue. And I guess the idea would be if you knew with the frequency with which certain mistakes were made, then you could maybe pay extra attention in those moments. In the book, you, your co-author describes a situation where you mixed up two very similar patients, right? And, and I've heard stories about people prescribing the wrong drugs because they began with the same letter, right? And so when they're just going through the machine. And so, you know, if they sound very similar and that they make them a lot of mistakes, then that might be an instance where the machine might say, are you sure, right? You know, maybe they don't say it every time, but they, they say it only in those specific circumstances where the historical data has said, hey, these two things get frequently mixed up. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that a machine could, I think, is a very easy use case. In fact, if you look at how machine learning is being applied in medicine right now, where it's really being applied, honestly, is in billing and trying to optimize billing for hospitals. That's like the biggest use case right now. But the other place that I've seen it being applied is in areas like this, where you know you can very clearly use a computer and an algorithm, machine learning, to say, all right, this drug was probably not intended for this person. The machine could look and see, all right, okay, here's the reason that a person would be on this drug. This person does not have any of those reasons. Moreover, another patient on Dr. Jenna's list does have all the conditions for which this drug would be used. Suggest now to Dr. Jenna that perhaps you made a, a mistake in prescribing this medication to patient A. It should have been or it was intended probably for patient B. So I think an algorithm could absolutely do that, but it could do much more. It could say, you're prescribing this medication here. It has a potential to interact with this other drug that the person's on. Okay, that's not that hard. We have pharmacists who do that and, and computers that do that, but what if it went a step further? What if it said, Dr. Jenna, your patient has a rising white blood cell count. They're not yet developing a fever and they don't yet have symptoms of pneumonia, but the nurse's notes say that the patient has been coughing a little bit more in the last couple of days this person might be at risk of developing a pneumonia, and that would require treatment with these antibiotics. If that happens, those antibiotics may interact with the medication you're planning to start now for a different condition, right? A sophisticated computer could anticipate a lot of those things that we wouldn't even think to look for. So it'd be kind of like a lane assist in a car. But you also mentioned this idea of cognitive forcing strategies. Now, I've done this with hedge fund managers, right? Where you kind of explain to them, okay, here are the kind of mistakes that you can make. And here's how you can give your brain a bit of a sauna to try to sort things out. What might also be useful would be if there was an automated way of alerting you to the idea that maybe you're tired, maybe you're fatigued, and, and maybe you need to reflect a little more. Do you think doctors need to spend more time doing sort of self diagnoses, right? Doing more reflection, doing more, I mean, they're busy people. And so presumably I'm betting that just like executives, the executives I work with, they don't set aside enough time to reflect on what it is that they're doing. Yeah. I think they would benefit a lot from doing it. The question is, is can they do it? Do they feel like they can do it? Uh, the only way to do it in a system like we have now is to see fewer patients. You see fewer patients, you get paid less. You need a billing code for reflection time, right? Exactly. Self-reflection. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The challenge is the trade-off. What I was, so when I was just on service, I've been thinking recently as I have a lot of friends who are in medicine. Most of my friends are probably in medicine or economics, but you know, I have friends who are in other areas like business or law. And, and I look at their careers and I look at the careers of my colleagues. I think a few things stand out. One is that most people find some joy in their job, but a lot of the people are just sort of, it's a job. There's a lot of aspects of it that the jobs that they don't like. But the other thing is that the jobs are different in an important way. So the feeling that a doctor can get from diagnosing a condition and changing the course of someone's life, it's really hard to get that feeling in any other occupation. There, I mean, there are some that you can get that, but that's just such a personal feeling that it's really hard to get that. Like I interact with a lot of lawyers, business people, and I think they like what they do. They're excited about it. There's a grit and a challenge with what they're doing, but it's not the same as walking into a room and seeing someone 
teary and comforting them, right? That feeling that you get is hard to replicate. But what I, I see this in myself, I see this in other colleagues, I see this certainly in the trainees, is that there's no time to do that. And that's like one of the aspects of medicine that makes the pain worth it. The pain of training, the fact that you might get paid really well, but you'll still get paid less than many of your colleagues in college who are going on and doing a lot of different things, right? We need to tap into that component of medicine, I think, a bit more than we do. And that takes time. When I was on service this last time, I, I, you know, I was telling the team, I was like, look, every time you go in that room, you, f- you find out something about this person that you didn't know before. That might mean that you spend a little bit less time looking at the computer later, but connect with that person. They will feel better because they have about 10 minutes a day with you. That visit that you give them is what they're looking forward to in the hospital, even though it doesn't look like that on their face when you walk in the room. That's what they're looking for. And learn something about them, share something about you with them. They'll feel better and you'll feel better and you'll look forward to the next such encounter. As opposed to saying, oh, is the potassium low? Do I need to replete it? Oh, why isn't this cardiologist calling me back? Let me call them again. All the sort of like the to-dos of medicine can get draining. So I think we need to tap into the core of it. Well, you have a whole chapter on what constitutes being a good doctor. And it seems like we don't have any kind of real objective metric, like performance metric. Obviously, you have productivity metrics. How many surgeries have you done? I guess we have some kind of error metrics, right? How many malpractice suits have you experienced? But in terms of bedside manner, subjective patient evaluations, is there any evidence that positive patient subjective evaluations correlate with the quality of care in terms of diagnostic accuracy and medical mistakes? Or are these completely orthogonal? Are there wonderful Marcus Welby folks who I remember I had uh, a skiing and I twisted my knee skiing and I went to this doctor when I was in college and he was like the most nicest old gentleman, super warm and friendly. And he diagnosed me with an ACL. And then I went to this younger guy who was in a hurry and he was like, no, it's not an ACL. You're fine. Get out of here. <laughs> and so the second guy was right. Yeah. And then what, what, what was the answer? It was just, a, it was a sprained patellar tendon. But the older guy, was I would have given him a positive feedback because he was so nice. Is there any kind of relationship there? Do we need to combine those? How do we come up with a way of evaluating the quality of our medical professionals? Really hard. I mean, studying quality at the individual doctor level is very difficult because that is a data problem. You know, we spoke about data issues. It's hard to get sufficient amounts of data on all the domains that you might care about for individual doctors. And so that's why we, we see very little doctor level analysis. I've, I've done a fair amount of sort of doctor or physician level analysis and, it, and, and it's doable, but it's hard. There's not really great studies that look at whether physicians who score better on patient experience do perform better in other domains of quality or are they better at prescribing antibiotics appropriately or pain medications appropriately or cholesterol medication appropriately, that sort of thing. I mean, you had, you pointed out that they probably are gathering more patient information, right? They're spending, presumably, so they're going to get a richer portrait of the patient. And they might excel in ways that we don't think about. So a doctor who has a good bedside manner, imagine that they make more diagnostic errors. So that would be a, di- I don't know if that's true, but suppose that were the case, that would be a ding to quality. They have good bedside manner. They make their patients feel good. That's a positive thing for quality, thinking about patient experience. But the other domain is something that is further out, which is when you make a recommendation to somebody, they need to follow that up. And you're not there as a patient is in the hospital to give them the medication. They've got to decide to drive to the CVS themselves, fill the prescription, take the prescription every day, do all the other things that you recommend. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see people do more of that stuff when they have a better relationship with their doctor, when they trust the doctor, when they think, all right, he or she, they really are interested in me and they wouldn't be telling me to do this if they didn't think that it was going to be helpful to me. And they answer all my questions. They spend the time to do it. Those sorts of attributes of a doctor, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw that it that correlates with improved sort of adherence to medical recommendations when someone leaves the outpatient office. Well, you cite evidence that when there is, at least with certain ethnic 
groups, if there's a positive relationship there, then it results in greater compliance, which is, is huge. Yeah, which speaks to the trust component. Yeah, I think trust is, a, some, is an issue in medicine that we don't give enough thrift to. And the other thing I say, Greg, is, is time. So everything depends on time. So you cannot make a patient feel good if you don't spend the time. You cannot assess what's going on with the patient, why they have the conditions that they or the symptoms they have, make that right diagnosis without time. You can't convince a person to do something that they would otherwise be afraid to do without time. And our system, what it does is it puts such a priority on making things as efficient and quick as possible that you don't have time to do this, right? We're going through and seeing patients. You can see them maybe for 10 minutes, like a typical PCP has maybe 10 or 15 minutes tops with the person. And what we should probably be doing is trying to figure out ways where the things that don't require doctor attention, we don't bring to the level of the doctor, but the things that do, we make sure that the doctor and the patient have adequate time, as much time as they need to figure out what's going on, plot a course, and make sure that the person understands why that course has been chosen and what they can do to make themselves better. That all requires time. And that's sort of like in healthcare policy, we talk about incentives, we talk about access to care, we talk about the price of drugs, we talk about how much doctors get paid and all this stuff. It's all important. But I think the most important thing is probably time. That's like the most important input that we don't spend attention on. Now, we got away from some of your experimental results. One of the results that I found fascinating was this idea that experienced doctors or older doctors may or may not be better depending on what it is that they do. And this was very surprising. I think maybe people have different priors. Some people might have priors that the experience uh, is going to make you better, right? And it, it doesn't always make you better. Yeah, that's right. I, I think when I walk into a room, what kind of doctor I would want to see, I don't think I'd want to see someone who's fresh out of residency. That would have been my instinct. But I'd want to see someone who's been in practice for some time, has gotten some experience, but isn't so old that they might be out of touch. That would have been what my instinct would have been. But when we look at the data, we don't see that actually. When you look at people who are hospitalized and we look at the age of the doctor who treats them in the hospital, that's pretty random because the way that hospitalized patients get assigned doctors, it's just when they came into the hospital and which doctors happened to be there at that time. And so it is random who you happen to get. And what we find is that the outcomes of patients are the very best when their doctor is fresh out of residency training, fresh out of training. That's when the outcomes are best. And then over time, as the doctor gets older, more experienced, further away from residency training, the outcomes of their patients get worse. And the outcome we're talking about here is mortality. The 30-day mortality of someone who's hospitalized is lowest when their doctor who's treating them is just fresh out of residency. And I think that's consistent with your example of the, the young doc that you saw who was in a hurry. I think it's because when you're in residency, all you do is clinical medicine day in, day out, 80 plus hours a week. You're just seeing patients. You learn a ton. You learn about the current medical landscape. What are the treatments available? What are the diagnostics that are now available? Someone who's been in practice for five years or 10 years, they're just further removed from that. They haven't worked 80 hours a week probably for a long time. They may not be familiar or may not have been recently taught what the new medical evidence is about a particular condition. And so it's interesting that that is not what I've expected to see, and, and nonetheless, you do see it. It's probably due to ex recent exposure to latest methodologies. I mean, could it simply also be due to the, I don't know, mental athleticism right, or the capacity to pay attention? Because if it's about exposure to recent stuff, then we could probably remedy that with continuing education to some degree, right? Or at least, I know they're starting to do this in some fields, have the older doctors come to the younger doctors for advice, as humbling as that might be. But if it's about just mental athleticism, then there's not much we can do about that. Yeah, good point. My instinct is that it's, when we look at the extremes, it's probably a little bit of both. If you have a doctor who's in their 80s versus doctors who's in their 30s, there is that cognitive component, which plays a role. But, you know, we see that this decline in mortality, or rather this increase in mortality, it, it happens year by year. So it's not, we're not comparing doctors who are 30 versus 60. We're saying take a doctor who's 30 versus 33 versus 36 versus 39. 
I wouldn't think that the mental athleticism would deteriorate from one year to the next. But what does deteriorate is, wow, I haven't seen a patient with this condition in a couple of years. There's sort of a lot of depreciation that occurs after residency, unless you are constantly using that information. But when you finish your residency, like your last day of your senior year residency, you know a lot because you've been seeing a lot and that's all you've been doing voluminously. So you could do like mid-career residencies, right? You're 20 years in, you got to go back and spend a year as a resident, right? Yeah. Or you make it so that the, the volume of patients is less and you allow doctors the time to be able to study. I will say that this sort of experience effect it is really primarily driven by doctors who don't see a lot of patients. If you look at doctors who are very clinically active, they don't have a decline in their outcomes as they age. It's really among the doctors who are less clinically active over time. It's because if you're seeing a lot of patients, you're learning by doing. And if you're doing that every year since you finish residency, you're always hustling. You're seeing a lot of people. But if you start to slow down and see fewer people, it won't be a surprise that you might see things get forgotten. And and you mentioned that surgeons do get better over time, right? Yes, that's right. So in the book, we look at inpatient medical doctors where we find that they get worse over time. And then we look at surgeons and surgeons are different. They actually improve into their basically fifties or sixties and then start to decline. And I think what's going on there is as you get really old, you sort of have problems with muscle memory and dexterity and strength. That's a problem. But When you're young, you also don't have that experience of being in the operating field and learning how to manipulate tissue and operate in tight spaces. So that's the sort of thing that happens with time. And medicine is different than surgery because medicine is really, surgeons obviously have knowledge, but medicine is exclusively knowledge. It's just a a knowledge-based discipline where if you don't know it, you won't be able to figure out the answer. And so as you forget information over time, as your knowledge depreciates, you're going to have worse outcomes. Where in surgery, knowledge matters, but a lot of it is that feel of surgery, being a good surgeon, having good judgment, having good dexterity. That sort of thing perhaps improves with time because you just do more and more of it. Now, another area that I found interesting is this whole idea of learning, right? Humans aren't perfect Bayesian learners. And as you get feedback from your diagnoses or from your interventions and you learn that you've made mistakes, you know, you can either undercorrect or overcorrect, right? You can either anchor on your previous model or you can kind of, you know, swing in in the, and so you highlight examples of this, which we see in all domains. And so we wouldn't expect doctors to be any different. Of course, the consequences are much greater. How can we help doctors become better learners, maybe to avoid this recency bias or availability bias? Is there by presenting them with more comprehensive data? Like how could we get them to think more like an algorithm? And I guess the other thing also is it seems like a lot of the learning doesn't happen because the folks who are doing the diagnostics never even find out if they made a mistake, right? There isn't this sort of closed loop learning process. Yeah, that's a, that I think is a really important issue. And so there's two issues. One is how do you get doctors to be more rational, less reactionary when they make medical decisions. So the example that we give in the book is, well, we give a couple examples, but one that I like a lot was a study of patients who have atrial fibrillation. It's a condition where the heart beats irregularly and it can lead to stroke. And what these researchers did was they look at people who were on a blood thinner, anticoagulation, we call it. They're on a blood thinner for atrial fibrillation. Some of them experience an adverse event, like bleeding into their brain or bleeding into the GI tract. It's a complication, but it's known that this can happen. And when a doctor has a patient that experiences that situation, that complication, they are subsequently less likely to prescribe a blood thinner to appropriate patients who would have benefited. And so that's an example of a bias where you are affected by a recent outcome and you change your behavior. Now, what could an algorithm do? An algorithm could come by and say, I noticed that you just changed your behavior for this person. Perhaps it's because of so-and-so event. You should realize that the benefits of this treatment are X, Y, and Z. So a computer could absolutely be looking for that sort of bias and and find it in the data. I don't think it would be hard to do that because it would basically look at a situation where someone had an unexpected turn of events, a C-section went bad or a vaginal delivery went bad, 
and then see if the doctor changes the procedure type for the next patient in a way that's inconsistent with what the computer thinks the doctor should have done or would have done based on that doctor's prior treatment histories. And if the person gives a different recommendation, the computer can flag it and say, look, this is different than what we would have expected you would have done. And also, by the way, it is the same thing that just went wrong in your last C-section. Would you reconsider? Computer could do that. Now, the other experimental result I found really disturbing is this one about birth date effects, right? And the, the younger kids are diagnosed at a much higher rate than the older kids with ADHD, right? And of course, you'd expect younger kids to, to have some difficulties relative to the older kids, but this is not evidence of an underlying disorder other than being below average in age, which is not a disorder. Yeah. It was an interesting finding that in states where the cutoff for school entry is September 1, the August born kids, they get to enter kindergarten if they turn five in that year. But if you have a September 5th birthday and the cutoff for entering kindergarten is September 1, you have to wait a year. So what happens is you become the oldest kid in the class or one of the oldest kids in the class. The August child is one of the youngest kids in the class. And the youngest kids in the class, they behave differently because they're younger. And guess what? They're more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, not because they actually have ADHD, but because their behavior is different than their peers in the class, many of whom are older. And it's something you should expect. Now, how could an algorithm fix this? Well, it could say anytime you diagnose somebody with ADHD, if they have an August birthday, you should reassess whether or not that makes sense to give that diagnosis based on XYZ studies. So a computer could do that and inform a physician who's about to make that diagnosis for someone that the computer thinks doesn't make sense to have that. Now, you have to rely on the natural experiments that are created unintentionally. Could we do a better job of manufacturing data that would give us insight. I teach about this study in one of my classes where the Norwegian government, when they decided to revise their mammogram policy, instead of just doing an overnight transition where they said, starting tomorrow, we're going to use this new policy, they just they phased it in in a random way across counties. And so not only did they do what they thought was right, but then they actually had a way of evaluating whether what they did was in fact right. Are there all sorts of opportunities for us to create experiments just in the ordinary course of practicing medicine so that we could generate all kinds of insights and we wouldn't have to depend on things like marathons and COVID and stuff like that to get insight? Yeah. First of all, I don't want to be out of, hopefully we don't do that anytime soon. I'll be out of a job, but no, I think Greg, you're absolutely right. And I think there's two ways you could do it. So one is at the system level, we could do a better job of implementing policies in a way that allows us to gain some knowledge as to the effects of those policies. A great example is mask wearing, right? Some months ago, probably more than a year ago, a lot of hospitals, people had to wear masks in the hospitals, much later than what we were seeing out in the community at a restaurant or a store or whatever. Hospitals were the last to go. Now, what they could have done is said, all right, let's, we know we're going to start stop the masks, but let's do it in a staggered way across the different units of the hospital. And let's swab all of our nurses, our technicians, our doctors in the weeks before, swab them once a week, and swab them in the weeks after. And look and see whether or not the doctors are less likely to get COVID-19, something like that. They could have done that. And they didn't do that. I'm not aware of anybody actually doing that. And I think, again, the reason why is because they didn't really have an incentive to solve that problem, not because they didn't care, but because like, you know, what's the financial benefit to the hospital of getting that information? So that's what I would describe as a very clear example, and there's many others, of how if you know you're going to implement a policy, try to do so in a way that can allow you to measure outcomes and measure the impact. The other thing which I've been more interested in recently, though, is what I would think of as more sort of N of one trials. And I'll give you the example that comes to mind is a, a, a gentleman from the UK. He's a doctor in the National Health Service, emailed me some time ago and was interested in doing research. And I said to him, look, I don't have any great research opportunities right now, but it sounds a lot like you're just interested. You kind of have this bug to do something different. 
and to study quirky questions. And I said, let me propose to you the following. You're going to see probably 20 patients every morning for the next week because he had a busy outpatient clinical practice. I said, for every other patient, after you do the exam and you give them the plan, walk out with them to the receptionist desk and help them make the next appointment. And just do that for every other patient. Because normally what would happen is the doctor would do all the stuff, make some treatment recommendations, say, I'll see you in six weeks. And the doctor would turn to their computer and start documenting the visit. And the patient would walk out of the door and would make the next appointment. Maybe they would make the next appointment. Who knows? But I said to him, like, look, it's a very small gesture. It may actually literally physically get the person to the receptionist to make that next follow-up appointment which we know often does not occur, that the, there's no follow-up appointment that's made. And also, it changes the nature of the dynamic. It's what you see in a hotel, right? In a hotel, someone who checks you into the hotel might walk you, they might come behind the front desk and walk you to the elevator. And when they do that, you, you feel differently, right? And here's a situation where it's like, look, just try it out. You probably won't find anything, but why not try it and see what happens? And that's a sort of N of one experimenting that I think we could do a lot more of. It's not a systematic study, but it gives you ideas. And if you see something happening there, maybe you study it more formally, or if you see something happening, you do more of it. And you don't need a randomized trial to tell you that it's working or not. Uh, you could do it on your own. Well, I mean, should large-scale health care providers think about having a chief experiment officer, right? So a lot of tech companies have this so that if anybody in the organization has an idea, there's somebody they can take it to, or anytime they're going to do something, they run it by the chief experiment officer to make sure that it conforms to, to the, to, to proper research protocols. And a lot of these companies like Amazon and, and, and Yahoo and eBay, they hire my economics colleagues to work one day a week with them to help them design experiments. We've We've got some large healthcare providers. Should they have like an in-house experiment expert? Good question. So I would say the following. I don't know if they should have one, but what they should do is experiment with having one. Get one, see how it works, see if they feel like they get any new insights, and then keep them or not. I think the challenging thing, the, the reason that Yahoo and Google are different than hospitals is that when Google is doing it, they have a very specific objective that they're trying to maximize, is probably profits, and they have ways to assess whether or not the, the different things that they try in a randomized way, it works. In a hospital, if you do something that improves quality of care, is it going to make the hospital more money? If it doesn't, they may not be incentivized to do it, which is a bad thing, right? It's not a good thing, but it's a reality of what might drive many hospital systems. So, I absolutely think that there's a role for someone whose job is to say, let's just come up with ways to use this really interesting data that we have to create new insights, find out new ways to treat conditions, and that's their job. So I, I think that there could be a great role for someone like that Lots in lots of healthcare organizations. Well, last question, and this has to do with kind of medical education. I teach primarily in a business school, and we have classes on data for decision-making and economics for decision-making and finance for decision-making and behavior for decision-making. It seems like, you know, medical schools, they, they don't have that. And so in business schools, you're presumably going to have some expertise. If you're making, I don't know, Tupperware, well, you got to know something about Tupperware, but then you have this whole framework of decision-making that sits on top of it. And that's what we teach. It seems like in, in the medical school, you're teaching primarily about the Tupperware. <laughs> Should there be a layer of kind of decision-making that's incorporated into the, and maybe a bit of economics that's incorporated into the medical education? Uh, absolutely. And, and the way I would frame it is two things. One, you know, I don't know if doctors need to know more economics. I think we need to do medicine better because we have huge amounts of quality problems. We're not nearly optimized in terms of quality. And so I would say, let's focus our attention there. But I think two paths to get there that are currently underemphasized in medical education are what I might think of as clinical problem solving. You see someone who has a condition, set of symptoms, how do you get to the right diagnosis? And right now what we emphasize is, is pattern recognition, understanding of physiology. Those things are great if you had a unlimited amount of time and an unlimited memory. But what you really want to train doctors to do 
is to be able to create differential diagnoses, like clinically problem solve, and understand that when things aren't lining up the way they should, to know that they need to search further to figure out the answer. That aspect of problem solving, I think economists do very well because the nature is, the work is different in that respect. In medicine, I think we rely too much on pattern recognition to sort of help us understand answers to questions. And there's like a reasoning that is sometimes not taught. And the other component, Greg, is teaching doctors how to interpret evidence, like what we see in the literature. And that could help us hopefully design better literature for people to rely on in the future, but also help us understand that when there's a crappy study, we need to be able to figure out it's a bad study and, and you shouldn't use it. And so that that is an important thing. It'll help us do better work and also not be influenced by low quality work. Well, Babu, thank you so much. You know, you only touched on COVID towards the end of the book. I think that we're probably going to see a whole tsunami of interesting research that's going to be coming out of all the data that was generated during the pandemic. And I look forward to that. And I look forward to your next book. Please, everybody, check out Freakonomics MD podcast and this book, Random Acts of Medicine. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.